from Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourselves an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the late 1980s, the uh, situation in Eastern Europe was growing more and more tense. And in the midst of a season in our world where tensions between superpowers seem to be near the breaking point, a group of dock workers, shipbuilders, electricians, all began to come together in the port city of Gdansk. And they formed what we would call in the West a labor union. They called it solidarity. They said something other than the ideology of our day has to bind us together. Something other than the ideology of communism has to unite us as a people. There has to be more to life. We have to be more than just some economic widget in the state's grand scheme of things. There is no freedom without solidarity. We in the West sometimes miss that point. We think freedom is the capacity to say to everybody around us, I don't need you. Leave me alone. I don't need anything. I'm, I'm good all by myself. Where in reality, freedom is always a choice to what we will be bound to and what we will not be bound to. You gotta serve somebody, that great theologian Bob Dylan said. And so the Solidarity Trade Union bound themselves to each other, did something nobody in Eastern Europe had done in 40 years. They, they struck the shipyards. A military coup brought down the communist government and it looked for a while like these labor leaders would be all thrown in jail, never to be heard from again. But they stayed together. They lived out solidarity and brought in their own way the Iron Curtain down. In the face of oppression, they understood that the only way they would survive is to stay together. And perhaps that's the telling point, because in the postmodern West, 
Nobody oppresses us. Nobody bothers us as Christians. I mean, we annoy people, but we don't really bother anybody. In fact, we're kind of boring. And so, it doesn't really matter, does it? Unless we understand that we are bound inextricably to each other, bonded together in solidarity with God and with each other. A solidarity that transcends our disagreements, a solidarity that transcends our capacity to annoy each other, a solidarity that is more than ticking the boxes of right theology and pleasant behavior. A solidarity that says we belong to each other no matter what. What creates a people with that kind of bonding agency? What, what can hold a people together like that? God and God alone. And so the second commandment of the ten words of freedom is no fake images of God. We live in an era of fake stuff. Fake news. Fake meat. <laughs> All kinds of falseness spreads throughout our culture. God declares to Moses, who declares to the people, there will be no false representations of me. You may not create graven images, as the King James puts it. No misrepresentations of God. Verse 4 calls us in Exodus 20 to reject false incarnations, false images of God, misrepresentations of God, because God's vastness leads us to understand only in part. It's like a group of blind men trying to describe an elephant. Each blind man describes a different part of the elephant and you wonder, how could this all be one thing? That's the work of theology. Theology is basically a bunch of blind men trying to describe an elephant. One person describes a trunk, another person describes a leg, another person describes a tusk. It's a very different experience because God is so vast, He can't be contained by a single image can't be contained by one representation. God is beyond our capacity to describe with precision or even with impression. We do our best, but we understand that it's incomplete. And so Moses lays down as one of the ten words of freedom, don't try 
to describe God in a single image. There is freedom there. Freedom to discover God in God's fullness. Because at the end of the day, that discovery of God in God's fullness grows out of our conversation with God and with each other. If God is one thing represented by one image, the conversation is over. There is no culture of conversation in the church. There is only worship the image. To be a people who talk about their experience of God, who live out an experience of God, it's absolutely necessary for us to keep from absolutizing a single image of God, to stay open to all of the nuances of God at work in our midst. And so Moses calls the people of God to reject false images, false incarnations. There would be only one meaningful incarnation of God, and that was Jesus, who came as God in the flesh and dwelt among us. But it's not just don't make art about God. Okay, I've heard that kind of sermon before. Eee, that's not what the it's not what Exodus 20 is saying. It's not just that. It's repudiate the idea that God is a transactional God. Don't bow down to them or worship them. Don't worship these images. Don't assume that the, your image of God is one where you do business with God and God does business with you and that's it. God's not the bringer of magic into our lives. Whether that magic is the magic of finding a parking place in Riverside at noon or whether... It's the magic of being healed from a disease. God's work in us is not transactional. It is covenantal. It is a relationship, not a deal. We don't negotiate with God. God doesn't negotiate with us. He invites. I will be your God. You will be my people. Now, now we can hear that and say, oh, well, God's making a deal with us. But that's not what God's trying to do. God's trying to say, I want relationship. If, if you just want to dial up a deal, there, there are plenty of idols to do that. That's the essence of idolatry. Is Here's what God looks like, and here's what God does for us, and here's how God does it. End of story. The mystery of Yahweh mystery of the God of the universe is that he's so much more than that. And so the second commandment repudiates the idea of a transactional God. A God who simply does for us. When we do X, God does Y. I bring my gnarly little sacrifice and God takes care of me. Yeehaw. I have kept 
God at bay. In fact, that was the basic ancient Near Eastern pattern was that the gods were to be kept as far away from everyday life as possible because they were scary, capricious, angry, wrathful gods who would take your harvest and your firstborn in a moment's notice and leave you bereft. And so you sacrifice to them to say, please, sir, don't hurt me. Yahweh says, don't, no, I'm not like that at all. I want to I be with you. I want to love you. I want to walk with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. We will work this out together. Repudiating the idea of transaction. And what drives God is an invitation to, and the Hebrew word here is hesed, an invitation to a zealous, loving kindness. Yahweh says to his people, I will love you. That's the point of the covenant. The point of the covenant isn't to do stuff for you and you do stuff for me. The point of the covenant is to love each other. When we marry our spouse, not too many of us sat down and made a list of all the ways in which our potential spouse benefits us. Better cook, cleans, uh, makes more money. You know, we, we didn't do it. We, we fell in love. Some of us, in fact, fell in love with all kinds of obstacles in the way of that. You know, all kinds of problems that our spouse potential spouse brought to the table and we married them anyway out of loving kindness out of a zealousness out of what the hebrews called hesed god's invitation to us we we read the passage in exodus 20 and we think God's a grumpy old guy. I mean, he's going to punish and, he, you know, punish to the third and fourth generation if you mess up. But we don't, we don't catch the imbalance in that, do we? Punish to the third and fourth generation, but bless to the thousandth if there's love. All that God is saying to Moses and the people of God is I just want to love you. And I want you to just love me. And in order to do that, don't make pictures of what you think I look like. And don't worship those pictures because you don't get the whole story. You, you leave out big chunks of who we are when that happens. And so it's invitation not to a grumpy God, but to a loving and faithful God that the commandment calls us to. And so this idea of hesed is central. This word shows up hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It's buried 
in the way we translate it. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated faithfulness. Sometimes it's translated mercy. 90% of the time you run into one of those concepts. The Hebrew word will be hesed or one of its cognates. This is what the second commandment calls us to. Invites us to. Urges us towards. Not a God who doesn't want any competition. But a God who says, all I want to do is love you. Don't make pictures of what you think that looks like. Be prepared for a life of surprise. And so the core issues of the second commandment are, first of all, the, the primacy of relationship in the incarnation. Incarnation requires relationship. Idolatry doesn't. In fact, the whole point of idolatry is to not have a relationship with God. It's to appease God. Idolatry keeps God at arm's length. Incarnation welcomes us in. It's also the centrality of covenant versus transaction in our worship. Covenant requires relationship. Transaction doesn't. We can come to worship and we can have a great experience of God and not relate to God or anyone else in the room. And I think when we do that, we've indulged ourselves in a great adventure and missing the point. The whole purpose of worship God is implying in the second commandment is relationality. It's coming together as God's people with God present in our midst. And then in the transcendence, thirdly, the transcendence of steadfast love. That said is God's way of choosing joy with us. God delights in us. God hopes in us. God aspires for us. God invites us to love, to steadfastness, to mercy. So this morning, some questions for us to reflect on and think about. Wow, that's really clear. That works nice. Well done. What are the idols of our day? How do we substitute worship of the one God, the one who's been revealed to us and is searching for us, for the worship of what God has created? We so often want to choose the created over the Creator. What are the idols of our day? What are the idols that we worship? How do we seek God transactions instead of covenant? How do we keep God at arm's length in our lives by appeasing Him? God, Allah, I, I, I won't make any other demands of You than this. I'll make a deal with you, God. How often do we find ourselves living in the midst of transactions with God instead of covenant with God? 
What does steadfast love look like to you? What is hesed for you? Mercy? Loving kindness? What does that look like in your daily life? How have you experienced it? How does God give it to us? And what other questions emerge for you from this passage? What else is God saying to you? There's one more thing. Christopher Marlowe, in his writings, the the precursor to Shakespeare, said, Above our life, we love a steadfast friend. More than life itself, we love a steadfast friend. The second commandment is not about cowering from an angry God. It's about love with a steadfast friend. God of the universe who seeks us out, who desires relationship, covenant, loving kindness with us. And that's all he desires. That God invites us in this second commandment not to cower in the corner in fear of being beaten, but to choose joy and walk with Him. Thanks be to God.